Just before you listen to this episode of Hollywood Sources, let me tell you that you can come and join us live for a special recording on the 21st of March as we mark 25 years of devolution. Already confirmed, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, Henry McLeish, all former First Ministers of Scotland, of course. You can hear them in conversation, ask them your questions, make your points as well. Come along and see us. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. The Hollywood Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. Today, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. The podcast starts now. So today, I once again say loudly and clearly, the fighting must stop right now. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. We're recording on Wednesday, the 21st of February. I'm Callum MacDonald and I don't know whether to introduce them in unison again. It seemed to work well at the pub. I'm not sure it would work, work well remotely. Here's Jeff Aberdeen and Andy McKeever. Hi both. No, Hello. it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You need to, you need to go to okay. one first and then fine. the other. We're okay, lost here. Fine. We're lost. All right. Jeff Aberdeen is here. He was Alex Salmon's chief of staff. Hello, Jeff. Hello. I also here, Andy McKeever, who was director of communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello, Callum. <laughs> Good. Nobody would ever know. Uh, right, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us on Hollywood Sources. Thank you for finding us. Make sure you follow and subscribe. Uh, be part of the podcast from here on out. And I, I have to say, we're recording on the 21st. It is one month to go until our next big live podcast recording in Edinburgh for 25 years of devolution. Already announced as confirmed guests, Henry McLeish, Alex Salmond, Jack McConnell, three former First Ministers of Scotland. Lots more guests to come. It's going to be a huge night. Get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. Lots to come on today's podcast then. Uh, a little bit later, we'll be discussing Alex Salmond at uh, the Scottish Affairs Committee in the House of Commons, where they were talking actually about this very thing, 25 years of devolution and the Scotland Act and where we are at now. We will also reflect uh, just briefly uh, Hamza Yusuf's trip to Aberdeen on Monday just past. And I suppose the fallout when it comes to energy. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, the SNP's motion calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and the various politics of that uh, back and forth between the SNP and Labour primarily. Lots to come. I just want to reflect this from the front page of the Times in Scotland as well today. We're not going to talk about it, but just in case you've not read the Times, detectives investigating the SNP's finances have requested to re-interview staff working at the party's headquarters. Uh, workers, including those who were not in place when the inquiry began, have been sent letters asking them to speak to officers. A source told the Times this move was being directed by the Crown Office, 
which is Scotland's prosecution service. Obviously, we're not going to dive into the detail of that, but the investigation is ongoing. It has been ongoing since July 2021. And uh, the Times reports frustration at the top of the SNP about how long it's all taken, which I think is actually probably a reflection of the public at large. It's been a long investigation, and so it's dominating, always in the background, isn't it, as well, of every discussion about the SNP's, uh, well, situation, really, and the context by which they're going to fight this general election and onwards. Uh, So just wanted to reflect that. Let's go on to what we can actually talk about on the podcast today. And actually both, I want to um, just reflect Scottish Labour Party conference from last weekend. We did our podcast at the pub. You can hear Anna Sarwar as part of that episode. Just scroll up in your feed. Andy, I suppose, can I start with a kind of, you know, was it a successful conference for Scottish Labour? It, it certainly seemed to generate a bit of buzz. Maybe that's because we were there, haha. Uh, but maybe it's because we were kind of in the in the bubble of it all. Yeah, was it a good conference as far as Scottish Labour should be concerned? Well... As you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a sceptic about conferences because, um, as I said in the podcast on Friday night, party political memberships are an absolutely dismal cross-section of normal society. Um, however, they are important in terms of internal momentum uh, and they're important in terms of morale. And I think that's probably the best way to measure conferences. Uh, and from that point of view, I think you'd have to say it was a good conference. And Asarwar had a real strut about him. I thought he had a real confidence about him. I thought he was carrying all the rooms he was in very, very well. Uh, People were looking to him for leadership and guidance, and I thought he did pretty well at that. It was busy commercially. It was a busy conference commercially. I mean, you know, Jeff and I both know from the work that we do that Scottish Labour Conference was a conference that people like our clients and other uh, organisations across the business community, they wanted to be at Labour Party conference because they think they're talking to the people who are about to take power. So from that point of view, yeah, I think it was a success. But I just would echo some of the points that I made on the Friday night podcast from Glasgow. They are not there yet in Scotland. They are well away in Scotland from where they are at UK level. And really the critical thing for them is what happens between the general election of, let's say, October this year and the 18 months thereafter that takes us to the Holyrood election in May 2026. Those are the key 18 months for Anas Sarwar because he can't just let Keir Starmer do the heavy lifting at that point. It's then all about him. Um, And he has to take himself from being pretty much neck and neck in the polls to establishing a much clearer lead over the SNP, which he does not currently have. He was in good form, Anna, so I have to say, uh, at the weekend. He seemed to be really revelling and buzzing from the whole thing. Um, Jeff, what was your perception of it? You were kind of observing that you had to spend much time at Labour Party conferences over the years. So what was your take? Yeah, I I would echo a lot what Andy uh, says. I I think the, the big takeaway I have from the conference, you know, and a bit of reflection is this is a, a party in Scotland that's been hugely bruised. Um, and uh, and let's be clear, they've been, you know, decimated uh, by the SNP in recent elections. But you got a sense of, yeah, they've turned a corner and, and they actually believe that, yes, they're going to be in government at Westminster. But as Andy pointed out, um, they're starting to build a platform to mount a serious challenge in 26. Now, I, you know, was in the background uh, of organising and preparing uh, content for conferences for the SNP for many, many years. And one of the first things you want to do is avoid a big gaffe, a big mistake, because all the press are right there and ready to pick up on it. And there wasn't really any mistakes. It was pretty polished in terms of its execution. So that's the first obstacle 
uh, 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 kind of overcome. The second thing is then what what do you use that platform to say? And whilst there was some you know tricky issues in the ether that they had to respond to on energy on this Gaza vote that's upcoming, and we'll, we'll talk about that I'm sure shortly. But but I felt that they dealt with it well and and came across as a party that yep is 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 in a position to mount a serious challenge in Scotland. Can I just come in with one more thing on that as well, actually, which I thought was I thought was interesting because during the ten or fifteen minutes we had with Anas uh, during the podcast, um, I think one particular thing that he said was really interesting uh, for from the point of view of what happens if Labour take control north and south of the border. So Anas and I have for many months and years had a bit of a friendly tete-a-tete about powers for the Scottish Parliament and my view that for Labour to really accelerate and take lots of votes from the SNP, they need to have a constitutional head-on and decide what the offer is to the Scottish people in terms of constitutional settlement. Um, and he and I don't always directly agree on the scale of that, but he, he said a very interesting thing, which he just told us on Friday night and which then made a little bit of news over the weekend after he had revealed it to us on the podcast which is that he's going to be looking, A, at extra borrowing powers for the Scottish Parliament, uh, and B, at what he called a fresh talent initiative too. Um, Now, for those who are a little bit younger than me, uh, listening to the podcast, fresh talent initiative was uh, in the Jack McConnell era, and it was effectively, uh, I suppose for want of a better word, a bit of a carve-out from the UK immigration policy to encourage more people to come to Scotland, which Scotland desperately needs because we suffer from a massive demographic depopulation problem that is not quite as evident throughout the rest of the UK. And Anas talked about FTI too uh, in the podcast on Friday. Don't underestimate the significance of that. That could be a very, very important policy for Scotland, depending on exactly how it plays out and whether or not it happens if Labour are in power north and south of the border. Yeah, I, and just on that, I mean that I, I again I agree. I mean, look, they, they need policies, um, and they need some distinctive policies in Scotland as well to set them apart from the charge that they're simply kowtowing to their colleagues at Westminster. So if we do see some more uh, detail and a real effort to push, you know, a distinct immigration policy for Scotland, and that's approved by his colleagues at Westminster, that's a clear offer there. And I think that the danger, of course, for, for the Labour Party is, is all to see, given that the, you know, the abandonment or the, the significant reduction, rather, of the, the 28 billion Green Prosperity Fund. When you take that away, there isn't much else in the policy cupboard um, that you can directly link to Scotland and Scotland's role in delivering it. And so I do think it's really important that they come up with that distinctive policy offer as part of the general election campaign. Yeah. I want to actually just mention that at the sort of very start of the previous podcast episode uh, from Scottish Labour Conference was John Boothman from the Times and the Sunday Times, who does this brilliant look back for us at sort of 1997 when Tony Blair was on the surge electorally and compares then to now and the sort of characters and people at the heart of that to now and what Scottish Labour were able to offer then compared to what they're able to offer now. It's exactly that point, Jeff, about what are you what are you kind of pulling out the hat here to to make people go well, hang on a second this is this is something serious i think john boothman's kind of historical perspective on that was brilliant 
um, on the podcast the other day. Uh, so that's Scottish Labour. Uh, you can have a little listen. Anna Sarwar were on that podcast, among many others as well. Eddie Barnes, who used to work for Gordon Brown. Uh, excuse me, still does work for Gordon Brown, is what I mean. He works at Gordon Brown's think tank. He used to work for the Scottish Conservatives, uh, is where I'm getting confused. Sorry about that. Uh, also, a couple of activists, journalists, all that sort of good stuff in the corner of the pub at Scottish Labour Conference. Shall we go on then, Jeff? You touched on this um, a moment ago, the ceasefire considerations from Scottish Labour, where they passed a motion at conference calling for an immediate ceasefire in the Middle East, in Gaza, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire is the language, recognising that for any ceasefire to be successful and sustained, it requires both sides to comply. So that was the kind of uh, context at the weekend. The SNP prior to that had tabled a motion calling for an immediate ceasefire. That's coming to the House of Commons today. Just by way of the parliamentary ins and outs and all of this, Sir Keir Starmer's put forward an amendment calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire that must be observed by all sides. The government's tabled its own amendment to call for an immediate humanitarian pause and also supporting Israel's right to self-defence. So, I mean, spot the difference. It's all about the language here, isn't it really, Andy? I just wonder that the kind of accusation today is that the SNP are playing games with this and just trying to box Labour in for something that is largely considered to be, well, in the words of one uh, reporter at the Daily Express, legislatively irrelevant. Uh, and that that's kind of the overarching concern, that actually this has very little bearing on what's happening in the Middle East, but does become very political from a kind of UK Parliament point of view. I don't know if it has very little bearing. Uh, let's not pretend we're the key player in the Middle East, okay? The US is the key player in the Middle East but we're probably second in line in terms of Western powers, given our history in that region, and particularly our history um, with Israel and the Palestinians. We are an important player there, and that that the knowledge and the acceptance that we're an important player is quite an important backdrop for what is happening at the moment. It's why words matter so much. Keir Starmer is the de facto prime minister. If you look at the polls, he's effectively prime minister-elect. Um, we have a situation where we have Joe Biden and Donald Trump vying for the US presidency. Neither of these men will give global leadership of the type that the Middle East requires. So Keir Starmer could have a very, very important job in the Middle East. And frankly, he has to be more careful with his words than anybody else in that parliament or our parliament up here at Holyrood has to be. Everybody else can afford to be a little bit looser and go a little bit further with their words than Keir Starmer can. He can't risk that. Now, the main problem with this motion, the main reason why this motion is not going to get the agreement of the front bench of the Labour Party is the term collective responsibility, because collective responsibility is a breach of international law. Um, if the SNP simply want to create a motion that gets universal support and which allows the Westminster Parliament to tell the world that we all think the same thing, if that's what they were wanting, they would take the words collective responsibility out of the motion. It's not needed. Now, I understand that Stephen Thing, Flynn thinks that there has been a breach of international law, and he may well be correct. That's absolutely fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that Stephen Flynn is wrong to think that. But putting that in the motion means Labour can't support it, because Keir Starmer is about to be Prime Minister, and he leads a party which has a historic and still present significant problem with anti-Semitism. So he can't support a motion saying that Israel is breaching international law. This is incredibly obvious, and this is where it does, I'm afraid, become a little bit of a pantomime, and it does become a little bit more about politics than it is about anything else. It is possible to have a motion that everybody supports, but this is not that motion. Well, I'm just going to add to what Andy um, said there. I think the 
let's look at the politics and then the personal for a second. So on the pure politics, one of the difficulties in a Scottish context is, is clearly that Scottish Labour passed a, a, a motion at their conference on Saturday, which included the line, quote, collective punishment. And that seems to be, and there is a lot of chopping and changing in this, but that seems to be one of the excuses for uh, Keir Starmer saying that they're not going to back the SNP motion. So in that sense, you know, the SNP led by Stephen Flynn at Westminster have, you know, firstly, they've created a fair bit of profile for the SNP on a UK-wide basis, which from their purposes is never a bad thing. Um, from their perspective, it probably is good politics in that respect as well, because they're trying to expose the, the, the lines of contradiction, perhaps, between the Labour Party north and south of the border. But if we look to the personal for a second, and this is where I think people just need to call canny with their politics, um, and it goes back to your point that you said earlier, Callum, <laughs> the outcome of this vote today will have very little bearing on whether young people, innocent people, civilians um, are going to die or not in the next couple of weeks. And that's what we're dealing with here. People should just remind themselves of that, of the seriousness of, of this. And so, yes, um, there's a political knockabout. Yes, it's a very serious issue. And the parliament speaking as one, if it could, on this might be a, an important message to send, but it's not going to uh, immediately impact what is a humanitarian tragedy. And politicians, just to be mindful of that as going forward, there's there's some capital perhaps to be made in, in some of this politics, but don't forget the overriding uh, humanitarian uh, tragedy that's ongoing. Yeah. Is this, Andy, is it is it damaging for anyone in particular? Because it, it has now spiralled into spin. You know, I'm just seeing that uh, Ian Murray who is a Scottish Labour MP and Shadow Secretary of State for Scotland, you know, calling the SNP deplorable for this motion today. Stephen Flynn's been on the on the radio this morning kind of calling out uh, Labour for, for not backing the motion. And so you start losing sight of actually what what the purpose of all of this is in, in the weeds of spin. Yeah, and Jeff has, I mean, Jeff has outlined that very well, right? Because that, because we are, we are going deeper and deeper and deeper into spin and politics, and further and further away from what's actually happening in Gaza. And I'm afraid that's going to continue today. Look, politically, the SNP are winning this. Stephen Flynn is winning this politically because this is a problem for Labour. And the reason it's a problem, it goes right back to what I say about the the benefits of being in opposition versus the benefits of being a de facto prime minister. It's very. I mean, Stephen Flynn knows that Labour can't support a motion that says collective punishment, but also we are then at a level of nuance which is already several layers below what the high-level message will be to the country on the news tonight. You know that we're already well below that level. So the the overarching message that people will be inhaling is Keir Starmer doesn't vote for a motion on a ceasefire. So that is a problem for Labour because we know that Labour are, you know, as much as Keir Starmer is trying to reassure Jewish communities and uh, and maintain that relationship, he is beginning to struggle with the Muslim vote uh, and not calling for the ceasefire. Yeah, of course, in certain seats, in certain areas, in certain urban areas, and in certain urban areas in Scotland where he's looking to make a lot of progress in this general election, yes, this is this is not helpful. Is it a massive election changer by the time comes? I'm not so convinced about that. But certainly on balance, you know, in this acute situation in the next couple of days, this is not helpful for Labour, absolutely. 
And, and what about Scottish Labour, who are kind of in a distinctive position to Keir Starmer? In fact, Anna Sarwar said the SNP motion looked perfectly reasonable a couple of days ago. So there's an interesting distinction there, isn't there, Jeff, in that Anna Sarwar's kind of carved out this slightly different route, not for the first time either. You know, he's been speaking about a ceasefire previously, but actually do Scottish Labour emerge relatively unscathed from all the all the politics that's going on? <laughs> Well, that was the kind of point of my previous contribution that that you know there is a difference in opinion clearly from the motion that was passed last Saturday to to what Starmer's seemingly saying today. There is politics. In this. Listen, there's politics and everything. There's a hugely important uh, issue, but I would be very mindful if I was uh, any of the political parties just now not to overdo it because if you lose sight of what's actually going on, on the ground in the Middle East just now and people are losing their lives. I don't think folk look kindly on on people trying to spend too much political gain on that. Uh, And let's just not lose sight of that, I think is the point I'm making. I think fair play, it's an important issue, and it's right that it's discussed by the UK Parliament. Um, And Stephen Flynn and the SNP have carved out, as, as Andy said, um, a position whereby they think they can they can make some gains and and certainly they've got the profiles to say but just across the board people just need to cop canny on this stuff my opinion fair uh, right still to come on the podcast today we are going to consider Alex Salmon's appearance in front of some MPs at the House of Commons they've been holding an inquiry on on working relationships between the Scottish and UK governments as, as part of 25 years of devolution really and since the Scotland Act uh, so we'll look at what Alex Salmon had to say to the MPs stay with us that's coming next Sources podcast is brought to you in association with the Royal Bank of Scotland. The Royal Bank has been part of Scottish communities for almost 300 years, helping businesses thrive, growing the economy, supporting customers to manage their money and to fulfil their financial dreams. From the world's first overdraft to the first fully fledged internet banking service, the Royal Bank of Scotland has always innovated to make banking easier for customers. Today, the Royal Bank supports around one in three Scottish businesses and is one of the largest banks in Scotland for personal customers. It also remains one of Scotland's largest private sector employers, contributing millions of pounds to the economy each year. As we approach the Royal Bank's third centenary in 2027, the bank's commitment to Scotland and to championing the potential of the people, families and businesses who call Scotland their home remains as strong as ever. This is Hollywood Sources. Thanks for being with us today. Get your tickets for 25 years of devolution. That's coming up in a month from now. You can get your tickets at hollywoodsources.com forward slash live. Right, just before we consider Alex Salmond uh, at the House of Commons uh, making his mark, it has to be said, on the uh, Scottish Affairs Committee and their evidence session on uh, on the relationship between the Scottish government and the UK government. It was pretty box office, as you might expect. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we do we just want to touch on uh, Hamza Yusuf's visit to Aberdeen, uh, which which was on Monday uh, and primarily energy focused. As you might imagine, it's been the kind of buzz of the last couple of weeks leading the news agenda for sure. And perhaps uh, one of the notable things to come out of this, the first minister announcing that he was against Labour's windfall tax. Hamza Yusuf said he would maintain the North Sea windfall tax at the current level. He was um, he was quite critical, really, of Labour's plans to raise it from 75% to 78%. The sort of Labour proposals go a bit further than that as well, Jeff, removing kind of investment allowances. 
has Hamza Yusuf kind of calmed a bit of the storm in Aberdeen among the companies that have been so critical of Labour's plans for the windfall tax? Well, yeah, let's just go back a, a one step and remind our listeners that on the back of, of Labour announcing the, their green prosperity plans, they, they did say that the, 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 the windfall tax would be increased to 78%. But actually, the more crucial part of this is the, the allowances that you re- referred to. And there was a massive reaction across the northeast of, of Scotland. Uh, I think within 24 hours, just shy of a 1,000 business leaders signed an open letter to Keir Starmer urging him to reconsider, or at least to come up north and you know devise a policy that doesn't deter investment in this crucial moment in our energy transition. Um, and so that was quite a reaction uh, to that. I think that the thing that really frustrates me is that the focus is on the, the, you know, the, this windfall tax. What we're trying to get a position to, and I think everyone agrees with this across political parties, is how do we best achieve net zero? How do we best protect the skills and jobs that are needed to get to, to net zero and make sure that Scotland, and indeed the UK, is a global leader in new and green energies? That's it's the how that people are, are discussing and disputing a lot just now. And I just want to share with you, you know, just some of the reactions I've had from uh, friends, some clients and uh, colleagues who work in the industry. And, and this is one that really matters. This isn't about the oil and gas majors that I've been receiving most of the responses from. It's from supply chain companies that are reliant on oil and gas contracts just now to fund their diversification. And I won't say names because they've asked not to be named, but there's somebody here that has now just mothballed a £30 million investment in their new green hydrogen R&D facility that they're trying to take forward to obviously capitalise on on the vast opportunities that, that may exist in the future, that will exist in the future with green hydrogen. Now, they're mothballing that on the back of this uncertainty. It's not just the Labour Party. It's been consistent uncertainty across the, the, the parties. We've had the, the Tories introducing the EPL, which immediately was quite uh, draconian. And, um, and then we've had uh, you know, the SNP's longstanding presumption against, which is largely totemic and, 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 and largely tokenism, actually, because they don't have the powers over that. But words matter of our politicians in terms of investment environment. Now we've had the latest Labour intervention. What people are crawling out for across the industry is certainty. Just give us an idea of a 10-year fiscal framework that people can work through so they can make investment decisions. It will be a huge betrayal um, if we lose our ability to be proper global leaders in some of these new green energies because people are, are you know, companies are scared to invest. That's what's at stake here, and it's so, so important. In terms of Hamza's visit, very briefly, he did oppose this additional uh, windfall uh, tax and said it would deter investment. Um, I think that was welcomed to a certain uh, degree, but there's a lot of work to be done here. And if I can make one plea, it's just try and take the sharp politics out of energy policy. We all know where we want to get to. Everyone's agreed on that. It's the how we get there and listen to industry. Final point was one of the biggest con- you know, uh, concerns outlined by the industry was these plans were announced with no consultation with anyone in the industry. It all became a bit of a bolt out of the blue in that respect. That's not the way to do business. Um, so let's just try and get a degree of consistency and certainty into an industry that's going to be crucial um, for our future economic environment and energy security going forward. Yeah, look, I mean, the politicians really pissed me off this week with all this, actually, to be quite honest with you. Um, I The difficulty is, and I feel this difficulty, like I, I, it annoys me because this is actually the uh, the potential economic, economic backbone for 
the country which my children and their children and their children will be living in. So it's really annoying that I am looking at a situation where I think we're in danger of screwing it up. And I think that is uh, deeply, should be deeply frustrating to everybody, actually. Um, Frankly, when it comes to Labour and the SNP, you don't know what's going to come out of their mouth at the moment on these issues. And that really is the difficulty. You just don't know what they're going to say. And I think the problem that we have seen is that leaders of both these parties, I'm afraid, will go to Aberdeen one day and they will say one thing and then they will come back to London or to Edinburgh the next day and they'll be nobbled by the people around their cabinet tables who think a different way and who have more of an urban head on and who have less of a hydrocarbon head on uh, and they will then say something totally different. Uh, and there's nothing more frustrating for industry leaders than actually feeling like they've been actively lied to. And they do feel like that in the past. Now, they might not feel like that today, but they might feel like it again next week. I think what we have here, and I'll just be brief because I actually don't think it's all that complicated. We need the politicians of the main parties to agree on the basic ground rule of this transition which is that hydrocarbons and renewables are two sides of the same coin. It's the same companies, it's the same workers, and it's the same profits that you need to actually pay for it. You can't grow renewables without the profits of hydrocarbons. So everything that gets done that diminishes those profits is a hammer blow for investment into the renewable sector. Now, I know that is a complicated message if you just want to have a go at oil companies, right? If that's the business you're in, if you want to kick Shell, then it's a complex message to give to say, actually, the profits of Shell are really important for blah, 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 blah. But that's what we pay our political leaders for. We pay them to give complex messages, to take complex decisions, and to do it properly on our behalf. What we are doing right now with a lot of the messaging that we are giving out from a high level is the equivalent of saying to somebody, you have to move house, but you have to fund that house without using the proceeds of the sale of your current house. Off you go, go and do it. It's the same thing, right? You can't have one without the other. And it is not that difficult to grasp. And that is why they've really annoyed me this week. Yeah. And if I may briefly just add, I mean, you know, Andy mentioned uh, Shell there. It's, it's a good example. And this is, you know, a matter of fact. Um, Cheryl also um, successful uh, award winners of one of the largest uh, Scotland licenses, offshore wind licenses. So they clearly want to invest in that. And they're also behind the consortium that wants to take forward carbon capture and storage. Neither of these things are available at scale yet, won't be for some time. So how are they funded to Andy's point? I think we all know that. Uh, and the second thing, I just want to amplify this point about the supply chain, the SMEs largely, that are the lifeblood of our energy sector. Uh, until we get these new energies and green energies available at scale, um, they are largely reliant on uh, oil and gas subcontracts just now. If they go, their funding goes. So how did they diversify and get us to net zero quicker? We just need a bit more of a sensible, pragmatic approach. I get it. I, it's a tough issue. And yes, when there's exorbitant profits, of course there should be additional uh, taxation. But let's keep it uh, within the realm so it doesn't lose that vital investment going forward. Because clearly, by definition, when, when the Labour Party are forced to say they can't spend their $28 billion anymore, the money's not going to come from the public sector. So it has to come from the private sector. Don't deter that investment, please.
Andy, can I just ask you a, a quick follow-up just on the, the kind of messaging and all of this? Because as you say, there, there, there's a kind of nuance and it can be a bit complex uh, to sort of, I suppose, in inverted commas, sell it. But the Labour Party are kind of going after the SNP after Hamza Yusuf's comments earlier in the week and sort of saying, look, the SNP are raising taxes on you know the middle classes on their income tax, but then not on oil and gas companies who in some cases are making uh, BP second highest annual profit in a decade this month. Um, £11 billion in 2023, British gas's profits up tenfold. Um, and so the labour line is, you're taxing workers, but you're not taxing these massive companies that are making billions of pounds. Yeah, well, obviously it's rubbish because, you know, when you tax these companies, you uh, workers don't become, workers become non-workers. We know that's already happened. Workers, workers then get uh, put out of work. So uh, those the, the two things are not mutually exclusive. That's electioneering. That's the sort of thing you see ahead of an election because you're looking for votes from a certain demographic of people. I mean, you know, th- this is... Look, this is politics, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we're going to see a lot more of this because you do see a lot more of it in election years where people say things that, frankly, they know are rubbish. But they say it because they think it will get them votes. And uh, it's not a Labour problem. All political parties say this. Um, That's why people are so frustrated with politics, to be quite honest with you. Uh, What we've seen this week from Labour and the SNP is a beautiful example of why the population are so sick and tired of politicians, because they all speak with forked tongue. There we are. Uh, right, a couple more things we want to get through. We're on our way to talk about Alex Salmond, but just on the way to that, shall we talk about BBC Scotland and its plans to scrap its hour-long TV news programme, The Nine? It was launched five years ago. Uh, they're also cancelling another couple of programmes, The Edit and Seven Days, which means that Andy will be able to afford fewer pints, I think. Does it not, Andy? Seven, <laughs> seven <laughs> days is the programme you used to do. I did used to do it. I used to do it during COVID, but I don't do it now because uh, they like you to be on the couch in person for seven days and I have four children to ferry about on a Sunday, so I don't do it anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the Nine is going to be replaced by a 30-minute news programme, which will be at 7 o'clock on the BBC Scotland channel. Uh, there's also a new topical current affairs podcast series. Sounds like you don't need to listen to that. Uh, there's already one right here for you to listen to. Uh, Debate Night, which is kind of the Scottish equivalent of Question Time, is going to be extended to a few more episodes as well. And a number of hour-long special editions of Reporting Scotland are on the way as well. So The Nine getting binned. Jeff, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because there were kind of referendum considerations in the uh, in the establishment of the BBC Scotland channel and this idea of a news programme in Scotland, for Scotland, by Scotland, etc. Um, and here it is, we're now witnessing its demise. Yes, I'll come to that specific question very shortly, but I thought it was very interesting, you know, um, your point about the podcast. We can save the BBC money here because Martin Geisler, senior political um, uh, journalist at the BBC, uh, said, quote, we have an excellent podcast. Here. Um, so if a senior political journalist at the BBC is saying that about Holyrood sources, you don't need to spend your money on devising your own one. Um, uh, look, I want to take listeners back, actually, and, and where did this all emanate from? Post-referendum, at independence referendum 2014, the BBC came up with this proposal to do a, 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 a new BBC Scotland channel. And I'm not trying to be clever after the event, Um But at the time, I was a little bit disheartened because I think what we actually needed is more opt-outs, more Scottish content, inspired content, created content, 
um, on the existing platforms because there is so much choice with explosion of streaming and all the rest of it. But I think that would have been a much better way to evidence your support for creative industries in Scotland. Now, you know, I, I like the idea of uh, an extended, uh, um, you know, reporting Scotland with more Scottish content. I think we should have that every night, you know, and 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 think about ways in which we can do that and really speak to the audiences uh, north of the border. On the, the, you know, the particular announcement, I just want to say a few things. There's a lot of stuff on social media, which I think is totally unfortunate. Oh, it was all rubbish and, and uh, uh, anyway. And, and you're getting folk from across the political divide saying that. I mean, there are some people supporting it as well. I actually thought there's some really good programming there and, and, you know, good people on it and an attempt to do things differently. But there's just so much choice that it's very hard to expect people at nine o'clock every night to chat, you know, tune into a current affairs program after there's been, you know, two or three hours of news programs and other channels, and when folk are sitting down to watch their their Netflix or indeed their um their their, their chosen film that evening. So again, let's try and think about ways in which we can improve the Scottish content on and opt outs on existing platforms as opposed to trying to create new ones. Would be my uh, view on this uh, situation and it is a sad story and remember there's people involved in these programs as well as well that will be pretty disappointed in terms of their own careers and thinking about what it means for them and let's hope that that those you know people stay in Scotland and, and have an opportunity to grow their careers. Mm. Isn't the moral of the story on this Andy and I know that you do some stuff with STV as well but actually STV's model is 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 more representative of all of Scotland in that they do have uh, outlets and news teams in the various parts of Scotland, whether that's in Aberdeen or in Inverness or in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Dundee and all of these places. So actually there's a far greater breadth of coverage of issues from across Scotland. And that is something that the BBC's had to wrestle with for years is actually they're very central belt focused. And that's fine. Clearly there are many people and many issues in the central belt, but actually the rest of Scotland matters too. Uh, well, certainly, um, if you look at the flagship shows, so um, STV News beats Reporting Scotland every day. Um, STV News always gets higher yeah. ratings than Reporting Scotland. Um, and Scotland Tonight, a, sh- a show that uh, Jeff and I are both on um, fairly frequently, is uh, has always beaten what used to be Newsnight Scotland or then became Scotland 2014, Scotland 2015, Scotland 2016 and so on. Um, it has always, STV's always won the ratings war against the BBC on those shows or certainly has recently. So they're doing something right at STV, which they're not doing at the BBC. This is not new, to be honest. You know, the news we read yesterday, we could have read it a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. They have just never quite managed to get the balance on BBC News and Current Affairs in Scotland, correct. They've wrestled with it for a long time. And I feel for them in many ways. You know, I know a lot of people there. There's a lot of really, really good people there, good journalists, good presenters. Um, But they just haven't found the right formula yet between Scottish content and UK content. Uh, And when you layer onto that all the other complexities of being in the BBC and the uh, balance and impartiality and all that sort of thing, it makes uh, Scottish news and current affairs a difficult thing to do. Um, this BBC Scotland channel obviously was supposed to answer some of those questions where you took a lot of that content and put it onto this channel, but it's so difficult to encourage people who are so used to watching BBC One Scotland 101 on their programme guide to then just completely shift to a different channel to get their content. They just, and, and experience over the last few years has shown that they haven't done it. They just haven't done it. 
programs like the Nine um, and Seven Days, which, as you mentioned, I've been involved in a fair bit over the last few years in terms of appearing on them, they're actually perfectly good shows. They're, you know, they, they, it, their problem has been where they've been and what time they've been. Um, so, you know, it's, it's good that they recognise that things haven't gone well um, and change is good when it's needed. But I just wonder how long this next set of changes will last and what then happens thereafter. Because as I say, I've been in and around this for a long time now. It's a very political discussion. Uh, It's a a constitutional discussion in many ways. And it's a discussion that we've actually been having for certainly as long as I've been involved, which is 22 years, and for long before that as well. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure the discussion is going to go away anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, Can can I just add to to something, um, Callum? Because you raised the point about how perhaps Central Belt focused the the BBC is. There is assets in uh, different parts of the country. There's a BBC studio, satellite studio at Beechgrove in Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. There's one in the uh, Inverness in, in the Highlands as well. I do think about part of their strategy going forward, and remember, they are our broadcaster. We pay for this as well, as to how they can utilise those assets better and ensure that local issues are con- con- you know, considered and covered in a better way. And I think that's got to be part of this kind of re- you know, the refocus or um, rationalisation that they're doing just now. Um, if we are to get greater Scottish content, let's not do it in a way that excludes other regions, Ertz and Pairts of Scotland. Let's do it um, in a way that includes them and makes them central to that. You're absolutely right. STV News have the opt-outs in the Northeast. What I watch in the Northeast every night is not what you guys, uh, Andy's watching in Edinburgh. Surely, you know, Reporting Scotland could do that as part of this process as well and make people feel a lot more comfortable and related to the news on their doorstep as well. And by the way, just one final point. None of that precludes that there shouldn't be a UK element to all of this. We are part of the UK and there's clearly issues. We've just been discussing one in Gaza and Palestine that transcends all of this, but surely it's not beyond the wit of the BBC to find a way to cover all those bases. And they need to do it pretty fast because this has been a really disappointing uh, exercise. Can I just say, it would be remiss of me not to come back in with what is my always my overarching point in the BBC, which I've written about many times before, um, which is that in terms of the way that we, and Jeff mentioned that there, we pay for it. And I'm afraid it's part of the problem. You know, it's 2024, right? This is not the way to fund a television channel or a media outlet. Uh, We have incredible amounts of choice now, uh, not just in other areas, but also in news and current affairs. Um, I wouldn't have any objection to paying for the BBC, and I probably would pay for parts of what the BBC offers, but I'd like to be given the choice to do so. Um, and I think that other, in, 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 the, in fairness to other broadcasters, and particularly in defence of our printed press, which I think has really struggled to make the conversion to digital and the conversion to paid digital, because all of it is available on the BBC for free. And I think that the existence of the BBC in its current form has decimated the printed press. I think it's decimated the regional press as well, because you can go onto the BBC and find out what's happening in particular parts of the country, which you used to get from your local newspapers. Um, And I also think that if we change the way the system works, which is inevitable anyway, so let's just go there now instead of waiting around for it to be be dragged, kicking and screaming into it. If we change the way the BBC was funded to more of a subscription model, not only would that help the other parts of the media, because we have a very centralised media, 
But it would also, I think, help the BBC themselves, to be honest. I think they'd have more clarity over what they could do and what they should do. And I think they'd be less encumbered by the knowledge that they have to have at least one eye on the fact that they are spending compulsory taxpayer pounds on this stuff. Right, let's go on. Uh, gosh, it's been a bumper episode today. Lots to get through. Let's talk about Alex Salmond for a few minutes, shall we? Alex Salmond, who is confirmed for our 25 Years of Devolution podcast special that you can come along to in Edinburgh in a month's time on the 21st of March. Get your tickets at hollyroodsources.com forward slash live. You actually got a bit of a preview, perhaps, of what Alex Salmond's going to say on the night because uh, he was in front of the Scottish Affairs Committee yesterday. Uh, I note this, actually, from, uh, from, who is it? It's Tim Stanley, who's written this in The Telegraph. Alex Salmond plopped into his seat with a tired but happy sigh. Quote, I caught an early morning flight from Berlin. I left Ban Ki-moon, Bob Geldof and Sharon Stone to be with you. <laughs> and while, while my impression of Salmond is not as good as Jeff's, I just thought that was a classic Salmond opener. Uh, <laughs> he, went on, he went on to say some interesting things. Um, the Scotsman's written it up as Alex Salmond's insisted message deletion was not a Scottish government policy during his time as First Minister. He said that Nicola Sturgeon's former Chief of Staff would have been a thousand miles from a senior role under his leadership. It's criticism of Liz Lloyd over messages suggesting the Scottish government used COVID to make a good old-fashioned rammy, quote, with Westminster. Uh, and he was asked if he would have taken that same approach during the uh, uh, COVID pandemic uh, had he been in charge. Uh, there was lots really in this, Jeff. It was classic Salmon. It's pretty box office stuff. It's one of the few sort of committee things that I've tuned into basically ever. And I was watching it uh, with, with great interest, probably because of our devolution programme, to be fair. But there's also a bit of a, a bit of Salmon box office in there. And he covered lots of things. I mean, the main focus of it was about kind of the, the relationship between a Scottish parliament and a Westminster parliament and the two governments and how functional or, or otherwise that is in his view. Yeah, um, I'm not going to focus too much on like the, the kind of headlines that, that some of the press took from it because we've covered these issues extensively on this podcast. But I thought it's worth anyone that's got a spare hour or so to watch it um, because um, he was very, very accomplished on it. And it, it is his natural environment. My goodness, he was a parliamentarian there for almost two decades and uh, uh, he knows that the ins and outs of, of Westminster very well but actually focus on what he was talking about in terms of the intergovernment relations and there were some really interesting kind of sections uh, particularly one uh, exchange with David Duke the MP for, for Banff and Buck and actually the the uh, the seat that uh, Alex Sam held out um, and won in, in 1987 to begin with and, and it really talked to what he thought was the three phases of uh, devolution. There was the immediate kind of labour years after uh, the first parliamentary elections. Then there's the the second phase of the 2007 to the 2014, and then what's happened since. And it was actually really, really interesting. Now, people might be thinking, ah, he would say that he used to work with them. I don't think I can ever be accused of not being critical of my old boss, but I do think it's it's fair to pay him some uh, credit where it's due. I thought it was a really, really interesting, insightful um, uh, session, and there was some, you know, there was some combative stuff but on the whole it was actually just very interesting to understand of how things worked and um, particularly uh, between the Labour Party when they were in government at Holyrood and uh, and the Labour Party at Westminster when they were in government under Tony Blair and then laterally Peter Gordon but how that changed when those two transitioned and then the reinstatement of the joint ministerial committees which I think is quite an interesting thing I remember it really well being in government all that said you know what it, I kind of came away from watching it and going Pfft, 
you know, he hasn't half wasted, you know, in terms of what's happened um, since. And, and I felt really quite a wee bit sad because I think he's still got a lot to offer in public life. Probably not, in my view, is uh, in frontline politics. But that kind of experience, wisdom, insight is, is, is at a premium now given the changes uh, that have gone gone in terms of personnel at both parliaments. And uh, it is a bit of a, a shame as a, as a former SNP advisor that the SNP can't really draw down that from that experience, given obvious uh, uh, ongoings. Mm-hmm. But there we are. Um, very insightful. And, yeah. and, and lots more of that to come, I think, at our event in a, in a few weeks' time. Andy, what do you think about uh, his appearance yesterday and, and the considerations from it? Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff. I, I thought I, I thought one of the most interesting bits, and it really made me think, I hadn't really thought about this much recently, but um, the interchange with David Ducat, which firstly, by the way, you know, we've talked a bit and I've had a right moan at politicians uh, during this podcast, I've just realised, thinking about what I've been saying in the last half an hour. Um, but uh, Alex Salmon and David Ducat had a really good interchange yesterday. It was very helpful. It was very informative. It was very cordial. It actually showed politics the way that it often does work and should work uh, rather than the way that it shouldn't. Um, but the interesting thing to come out of that, I think, was how Alex Salmon, and I'm sure he will be in touch if I'm paraphrasing him incorrectly, but what he basically said was that Intergovernment relations were better when there were different parties in control in Edinburgh and London. Um, because when Labour were controlling both parliaments, the mechanisms were far too informal, far too much nods and winks, and not enough formal intergovernmental relations. And he, he, met, he noted that actually only when he came to power were the intergovernmental relations formalised and began to work a lot better because the parties were not the same. And the reason, as you will gather that that made me kind of prick up my ears and take notice a little bit is that um, if the polling is to be believed, we have a reasonable chance in the next two years of having Labour in control north and south of the border. And the absolute presumption all the time is that that will make things like what we've talked about earlier, energy, a great area between devolved and reserved areas, that will make that work better, won't it? Because both parties will be uh, the same and that will make all that easier. But it, what, what Salmon said yesterday made me think, actually, will it, though? Uh, or will that reduce the formalisation of these ties and potentially make things more opaque and a little bit more difficult? So I thought it was interesting food for thought, but it is the that's exactly the sort of thing I think we want to talk about uh, at our 25th anniversary podcast next month, because... Those are the things that make devolution work or not. Get your tickets now. Go to hollyroodsources.com forward slash live. Uh, and there you go. That's a bumper episode. Gosh, we've got through loads today. Uh, thanks for being with us on Hollywood Sources. Make sure you're following the podcast so you get every episode as it drops into your feed. That's usually every Wednesday, but sometimes additional episodes too. Worth saying that we're going to be at Scottish Conservative Party Conference in about 10 days from now as well. Uh, and we'll be recording our usual uh, party conference special in the corner of a bar somewhere. Uh, that's where to find us Uh, so we'll do that as well for you go and get your tickets hollywoodsources.com forward slash live so we can see you at our 25 years of devolution event and we'll talk to you next week